Good morning. It's Friday, the 28th of July, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj in transit this weekend. Our top stories and themes today Indian markets pause again, but on Wall Street, the Dow Jones index has just had its longest run in 36 years. If banks are doing so well, is the rest of the economy doing well too? There is excitement around copper, something we all use in our daily lives, and fresh capacity is coming in after a break. Working from home, why you are a big candidate for diabetes with Dr. Arim Anjana of the Madras Diabetes Research Foundation. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Markets pause in India, but not elsewhere. Markets paused again yesterday. Evidently, the bears are now flexing their muscles, being the second time in a week. The BSE Sensex ended the day with a loss of 440 points at 66,267, while the Nifty 50 ended 118 points lower at 19,660. Meanwhile, the US economy, an important trigger for markets world over, grew much faster than expected in the second quarter. Gross domestic product increased at 2.4% annualized rate last quarter, while the economy grew at 2% in the Jan to March quarter. Now, if you were feeling a little low about the Indian markets, you could perhaps take some comfort from Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average pulled out its longest winning streak in 36 years to mark its 13th straight session in the green. A bit like a well-fought Wimbledon finals, where the eventual winner keeps coming back and gaining. I wouldn't extend that analogy too far though. The 30 stocks of the Dow haven't pulled off a streak like this since 1987. Now, there are some things markets don't like, possibly surprise investment decisions. Automaker Mahindra and Mahindra shares fell close to 7% in intraday trade after it announced that it had acquired a 3.5% stake in RBL Bank, a private bank for about 417 crore, while indicating that it may take up to a 9.9% stake, which, by the way, is almost the maximum being allowed for a corporate or business house to acquire in a bank as per RBI rules. The maximum is 10%. Now, M&M runs M&M Financial Services and there could be some synergy there. But what that could be is not clear at this moment and the company hasn't said. Mahindra Finance as M&M Financial started life as a captive financier for M&M vehicles including tractors in the early 90s and onwards and then switched to becoming a more general purpose financier for rural markets. Mahindra Finance employs about 24,000 people and works in, or says it works, in more than 380,000 villages and has about 82,000 crores of rupees as assets under management. So it's not small. And a strategic tie-up with RBL Bank would work somewhere. RBL Bank itself started life as Ratnakar Bank just before independence and has changed colors, ownership and profile. Today it has a network of about 517 branches and 1,166 business correspondents, of which close to 300 are banking outlets. And all of this is spread across the entire country. Some food for results. If you consumed KitKat, Nestle or Maggie in the last three months, you might be pleased to know that you contributed to Nestle's 37% jump in net profits for the June 2023 quarter over last year. This is the second quarter for Nestle because it goes through a calendar accounting period. This is the fifth quarter in a row of double-digit growth across all product groups. Domestic sales growth is broad-based and grew by 14.6%. Key brands continue to perform well, led by KitKat, Nescafe and Maggie, among others. 
Suresh Narayanan, Chairman and Managing Director of Nestle India, said. How well are India's banks really doing and what do their results reflect? India's banks, particularly privately run banks, have had a solid last quarter. To give you a few quick illustrations, ICICI Bank posted a 40% year-on-year growth in net profits, even beating analyst estimates. All other indicators like net interest income and asset quality were better. Kotak Bank, whose headquarters is a short walk and around the corner from ICICI Bank in Mumbai's financial hub Bandra Kurla Complex, reported a 51% year-on-year rise in its consolidated net profit, while net profit on a standalone basis rose almost 67%, again beating analysts' estimations of a 53% growth. HDFC Bank, the combined entity reflecting the older non-bank finance company and mortgage lender HDFC's assets and businesses as well, reported a 30% growth in net profit, again beating estimates. Even a small bank like the Thirusur-based South India Bank recorded a 75% growth in net profit for the same quarter. Now, these were big and one small bank. On the other hand, the Indian Express reported that banks wrote off bank loans worth about 209,000 crores or around $25 billion during the year ended March 23, taking the total write-off in the last five years to about 10.57 lakh crore rupees or about $129 billion. Now, that the banks are and were writing off bad loans is not news, even at this scale. Though that they are doing so even now or as recently as March or last year sounded a little new. Equally, the gross non-performing assets of banks or the loans which have not been repaid has touched a 10-year low of around 4% of advances. So, things as far as balance sheets go off banks are getting better and improving. But if you go back a decade to 2012-13, the total write-offs touch about $187 billion. But once again, this is all known at least in general, if not specific, and has also been the subject of much political debate. So there are a few larger questions. If banks are doing well, at least the ones I just mentioned, then what does that say, if anything, about the underlying state of the economy, at least as viewed through this lens? Second, are all banks doing as well or only some, and thus those cracking numbers? And finally, where are we on this non-performing asset front and the overall health of the banking sector, including, critically, the baggage of the past? To understand this better, I spoke with Krishnan ASV, Lead Analyst, BFSI, Institutional Equities at HDFC Securities. BFSI is Banking and Financial Services. And I began by asking him how and why results were so strong in recent days. It seems to us it's uh, an industry-wide phenomenon with very few exceptions in the banking system right now. And as a backdrop, I think we'll have to go back two or three years when the pandemic began. What the pandemic did is essentially flushed out the weakest links of the customer segment. Every customer funnel will have a bottom of the pyramid. What the pandemic did in terms of restructuring and put moratorium is allowed lenders to identify who are these you know, customers who need help, who are relatively more vulnerable during an economic downturn, etc. And it flushed out that category of customers completely. So what is left is essentially, if you imagine every customer funnel to be, say, four or five layers, we have the pandemic essentially eliminated the bottom layer. And what is left is hence a healthier portfolio. So asset quality is far more pristine. 
So this is obviously one tailwind, right? One tailwind that was because of the I mean, pandemic. The other tailwind that came through was essentially the RBI imposing that retail and MSME assets have to be benchmarked to the repo, I mean, external benchmark. That was very crucial, I think, because what that did is in an increasing interest rate environment, which happened between April 2022 to now, when RBI kept raising the repo rate, the entire asset book actually reflated pretty quick. So the asset yields adjusted upwards. The liabilities did not hit their balance sheet until very recent. So the cost or the deposit cost did not quite rise proportionate. The asset prices or the asset yields moved disproportionately higher. So the RBI did 250 basis points of repo rate hike. Almost all floating rates, retail loans and MSME loans have reflated similar amounts, so 250 gifts. And that's nearly 50% of the banking system now. So 50% has reflated 250 bips. That's easily 125 bips on your asset yield. Whereas your deposit costs are slow, gradual in repricing. So that's the other big tailwind because of which it's been very impressive. The PNL has had this upshot coming in. But this would at some point end or at least converge. I mean, the fact that deposits also will have to start paying out a much higher rate of interest than what was paid earlier, isn't it? Correct. And I think that repricing is beginning to happen. For some banks, it started in the March quarter. For many others that I've reported so far, it's visible. The, the first effects, the first order effects are visible in the June quarter numbers where the cost of deposits have gone up more than the asset yield. So the margins have begun to drop. They peaked in the March quarter for many banks. For a few outliers, it peaked in the December quarter itself. There were one or two such banks. But for most of the banks so far, if you notice, I think the results, the only results that we have seen so far, most of the banks have seen a peak in March quarter. June is lower than the March quarter. Right. And, and you talked about this uh, flushing out of uh, lower quality assets. Now, what does that signify in a sort of more broader macroeconomic sense? Is it that some people now will not get loans because banks are obviously becoming even more conscious about who they're lending to? And of course, this leads to the larger question. I mean, what is all this? reflect in a macroeconomic sense? At least there is an NPA tag to them. So to that extent, it's identified, it's classified as impaired and hence provided by the formal banking system. It doesn't mean they can't come back, but I think it will need more data in order for those customers to come back into the formal fold again. So say, for instance, if there were customers that defaulted or underwent or, you know, uh, utilized the moratorium during the pandemic period. So very clearly, you could bifurcate and you could distinguish between customers who did not utilize moratorium at all, who kept paying on time, right? Then there were customers who adopted the moratorium because it was offered, right? But voluntarily were able to switch back into regular payments. There are many ways to slice this, right? And I think the smarter lenders have done that. I think not a lot of lenders have done that during the pandemic. The data allowed them to essentially flush out the kind of customers who were most vulnerable and those were eliminated, you know, systematically. They will come back, but, you know, either pricing will have to reflect that higher risk or the fact that credit score is lower for such customers. That will, So it will have to be priced it. Or it will need more data in order to underwrite such customers, of course. And in, in a broad sense, who are the most lucrative customers for most of these banks today? 
doesn't seem to be large corporates because it's a very thin spread business there. It doesn't seem to be the prime or the super prime customers because that's not where banks make money. And so I think definitely the war is for the mass affluent, so-called mass affluent customer segment. In various different modes, I think this is called by different names. This is called the middle India, the middle class India, etc. by different consultants, management consultants. And so no matter what you call it, I think this is going to be the burgeoning customer segment over the next 10 years. And I think lenders are going after that customer segment, whether it be for consumer loans and SMEs. I think what India Stack has done is so we have become data rich in that sense. There is GST, there's a lot of other things, payments through UPI, etc. So even small merchants, there is you know data building up on these small merchants as well. And different lending institutions have different appetite in terms of when they want to go after certain merchant categories. So, so SMEs, SMEs definitely, no matter by what name you call it, it's called, in some banks, it could be called business banking. In some banks, it's called mid-corporate, emerging, emerging corporate, emerging enterprises by different names. Yeah. Okay. So recently, Express put out a report basis RTI that they had filed. And this is to the Reserve Bank and saying that the banks were still uh, reporting about 209,000 crores of NPAs, writing off rather. So is there any dichotomy in this? I mean, the way banks are performing and what we've just talked about versus the fact that people are still, you know, recording NPAs? So NPAs are a stock number. I suspect this number would be a stock number. That stock number can't go to zero. That stock number either has to be written off gradually or recovered or upgraded. So if you built up a stock of, say, 5 lakh crores as NPAs, that number has to organically go down only three ways. Either you have to upgrade, so somebody defaulted, you upgrade them to a standard. Or you recover money. Or the third one is to write it off. These are the only three ways where you can actually organically run down the, I mean, the gross NPA number. And then obviously provisions take care of it. So I believe, I mean, the capitalization of the PSU banks helped cleanse out the balance sheet. So they are a lot more deleveraged, not much baggage, well provided, all sitting on, I mean, there are PSU banks that are sitting on 90% plus kind of provisioning coverage now. But yeah, the stock will not come down in a hurry because after all, it is stock that has built up over a period of time. It will take long time for it to come off. But I'll be very surprised if these numbers are incremental every year. I don't think that's the case. For well, from, all, from all that we have seen, this is a very benign credit environment today. Uh, either because of availability of data or because there are certain customer segments that are currently missing or the re-risking has not happened. Right. So in, in that sense, just to sort of sum it up, then you're saying that the, the health of India's banking system is, uh, at least from whatever we can see, is quite good or, and the best perhaps it's been in a long time from all these two points. Of view. Yeah, I think FI23, so the financial year 23 was a record year for all banks collectively. So the new normal for the banking system, that FI23 will probably be a peak, right? It's very difficult to expect financial year 24 will be able to match that. We won't. But even when we taper off those highs, we will still be in a far better position than we have ever been in the last 10. Right. And that's good to hear. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Krishna. Thanks a lot, Govind. Thanks. And the excitement about copper. 
Copper is used in many places in and around your home and vehicles and perhaps whatever you're holding or touching right now. And this was news to me. As logical as it may sound, for every 1 megawatt of solar power, you need 2.5 tons of copper in contrast to let's say 1 ton for thermal-based or coal-based power generation. And electric cars take up almost four times the copper as compared to a regular internal combustion engine like petrol and diesel. So the wire harness in a regular car is about 1.5 kilograms, while with all the batteries and wires running up and down, it's 6 kilograms as an average in an electric car. Now, the problem with copper is that not enough of it is made in India. Sterlite Copper had a plant running in Tamil Nadu, which was shut down following environmental protests in 2018. It represented roughly 40% of domestic production. So help is at hand, with the Irani Group now saying that its copper-producing factory in Gujarat's Mundra will begin operations in March 2024. The Greenfield Copper Refinery project is estimated at about 8,800 crores and will have an annual production capacity of 1 million tons, which at peak should take care of most of India's needs, at least at this point, though demand will keep rising. Interestingly, roughly a third of total global demand for copper is met with recycled copper. Now, to get a sense of the copper landscape and why not too many businesses were investing in it, I reached out to Mayur Karmarkar, head of the International Copper Alliance in India, and I began by asking him to define the landscape as he saw it. Copper is the essential commodity cuisine across all the sectors. Uh, you start with building construction. You know, every square feet of the building which is constructed, you are adding almost like 29 grams of copper. Uh, imagine if the new targets and particularly the think tanks are talking of creating at least 700 million square meters of construction every year. That's going to add at least 200,000 tons of copper every year. Then you will take the power infrastructure. Today, our per capita consumption of electricity is likely to do that going to create larger need for power infrastructure. For example, the distribution transformers and the power transformers, solar transform market will grow. So that's going to create another additional at least uh, 120, 130,000 tons of copper. So those are the key infrastructure items which where the copper is very popularly used. Then you have all the industrialization related growth coming in motors and different industrial products. Then you can talk about the clean energy transition, which is the current trend. In fact, there was a successful G20 meeting and, uh, you know, all meetings has been consistent in terms of improving the ambition of the climate change and the goal. So, for example, renewable energy of 500 gigawatt by 2030 is going to add huge amount of copper because, for example, every solar 1 megawatt installation needs additional 2.5 uh, tons of copper. So if you keep adding all those, the current demand is around 1.5 million tons, which is 12,40,000 tons. And that demand will grow a little over GDP going forward. So it may grow at the rate of 8-9% average for 2030. So we expect the demand for copper being somewhere around 1.8 million tons by 2030 which is the huge number. Now come to the supply side. 
unfortunately uh, after the closure of sterlite plant the country has a shortage of supply of refined copper because only one plant was functional now putting up a smelter and refiner is a capital intensive project and this project takes almost 2-3 years it's a longer gestation period for commissioning those the multi-billion dollar investment not everybody can invest and also it has a little longer gestation so as a result of that the sterlite plant was under the legal litigation case Adani has announced their investment and they have now uh, saying that they will commission the plant uh, which is going to add 500,000 tons capacity. So uh, all put together, the refined copper supply in a country will be available almost over a million tons, which is still shorter than the expected current demand. So now who is filling that demand? Major demand is paid to scrap because copper is the most recyclable material and copper doesn't lose its property through recycling. So we have been importing scrap and those imports have gone up 230,000 tons on the financial year 2022. 2023 data, we are just compiling the data for the total demand for three. We expect it may have grown over 10% over 1.5 million tons. Uh, then uh, in terms of the supply of scrap, scrap, global availability of the scrap is limited because every country is going to their own recycling policies linked to with the circular economy policy. So as far as the scrap availability is concerned, it's going to be a problem for us because uh, the largest scrap generation is the United States, Europe, and they are encouraging more recycling within their country. So we have to depend on our own scrap and our own scrap on an average coming over 300,000 tons uh, in copper and copper alloys. And we have to encourage the uh, more responsible recycling policies and the entire scrap availability should be available more legally because there is the issue of GST of the end of life products. because. Like people like you and me, when we scrap our old products, we don't pay any GST. So that cycle of the taxation is not complete. But when the scrap is made as an input material, it has to go through proper taxation routes. So there are the issues which every recycling industry is uh, struggling with. So overall, availability will remain as a constraint. Okay. So a uh, couple of quick questions. Uh, one is that you said one megawatt of renewable equals 2.5 tons of uh, copper. Yeah. So is that uh, ratio higher for renewable as compared to regular, uh, let's say, power generation? Regular when I say thermal? It is It is higher. Regular power generation is little over one ton. So this is two and a half ton, yeah. Okay. And yeah, this seems to me at least like a hidden fact. I mean, I didn't, I was not, at least I was not aware of it. I'm sure people in the know knew it. But take the example of electric vehicles. Today, for example, we have uh, two, three wheelers which are largely coming in electric vehicle format. Electric vehicle, for example, your normal two wheeler powered by the gasoline or the petrol 
uh, has the wire copper usage of 1.5 kg using the wire harness mainly and some small starter. If you go for the electric one, it goes up to 6 kilo because copper is used in the lithium-ion batteries, copper is used in the two-wheeler, copper is also used in the wire harness and then the charging and infrastructure. Therefore, government has recognized copper as a critical material going forward. Uh, in fact, Ministry of Mines has published the list in that copper is critical for countries' development and also for the clean energy if copper was so required and in demand, why is it that we've not really seen so much domestic capacity? Is it to do with its polluting nature or is there some other challenge? It's it's a myth. It's not polluting in nature. Pollution of copper plant is not any way different than any other plant. And it is very well controlled by CPCB and those guidelines are strictly honored by the copper pollution plant. So it's not a pollution as the issue. It is largely the capital intensive. And the most important part you have to see in the business of copper, you need the investment investor with the deep pockets because managing the copper plant is you require a larger corporate because uh, the margins of converting the value addition is much smaller compared to the working capital you require. This copper production even globally, is done by the larger corporation. And therefore, it cannot come, the copper smelting refining cannot come into MSME because it doesn't qualify the definition of MSME. Right. So, I mean, just to round that up, I mean, as a business house today, it would be more profitable for me to produce, let's say, steel or aluminum as compared to copper? No, profit is very different. So, in case of aluminum, you have a larger input cost, which is the energy cost. Profitability is different and the gross value addition are different. It's not that copper has less profitability, but value addition is small. Got it. Mayur, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Diabetes and work from home. A recent Indian Council of Medical Research-led study has recorded some 100 million individuals with diabetes and 136 million with pre-diabetes in India a 44% increase in the last four years. The lead author of this report, Dr. R.M. Anjana, Managing Director of the Dr. Mohan's Diabetes Speciality Center, features on the core report weekend edition and speaks about why diabetes needs to be tackled urgently and why we are more vulnerable than ever before. Look at dietary patterns over the last 10, 20 years. Look at physical activity levels. Look at obesity levels. All of these things have undergone drastic change. Now you add COVID into the mix and there is like a multiplier factor here. So dietary habits are largely unhealthy with too much carb, very less the fruit and vegetable intake and high in salt, sugar, fat, etc. So this is common everywhere, not just in urban but in rural. You take physical activity, it looks just quite dismal as well because uh, people are becoming more and more sedentary. And now with um, you know COVID coming in and just work from home, People barely move from one room to another, leave going to office and coming back and all that has become like a weekly phenomenon now. So barely, what is your activity level? You move from bedroom to kitchen to bathroom and you sit together. So with this, there is a compounding of your uh, physical inactivity. People are not exercising anyway and all this is compounding. Now this has moved to children also. So when you see this is a further risk factor, add in stress nut. 
Stress levels are increasing everywhere, all ages, everybody, you know, who's not stressed. So naturally, you will see that when these things come together, it all leads to obesity, hypertension, then diabetes, you know, so it's all kind of linked. Catch that full conversation on the Core Report Weekend Edition on Saturday. Have a great weekend, meanwhile, and see you on Monday morning. And before I go, my thanks to Dr. A. Velumani, founder of Thyrocare, and Deepak Maheshwari for their very warm comments and feedback. This was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.